0: you thought that you could have it all and life could be a ball well you fell and scabbed your knees
1: Welcome to the Recovering CEO podcast, video podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, author, business coach, uh, psychotherapist, everything. I mean, she wrote an amazing book called The Connected Leader. Her name is Karen Hardwick. And Karen, how are you today?
0: Derek, it is wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Yes, thank you. And I, Oh, I forgot your middle name, Joy, which is very appropriate because this book honestly gave me a lot of joy. Um, wonderful, wonderful book.
0: I love hearing that.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so thank you. Sure thing, Karen. So, you know, as you know, and I, uh, the recovering CEO podcast is about helping people in recovery, but it's really about connection. And, you know, your book, the connected leader, seven strategies to empower your true self and inspire others really talks about connection. And, you know, from my experience, connection is the antidote to addiction. Um, you know, when I am in an addiction that I'm alone, But when I'm connected and living in the light, then I'm really able to flourish. And um, tell us a little bit about about your book and how it all began and curious to hear.
0: Oh, it was a long journey. And I agree with you. Connection is the antidote to addiction. Because when we're in our addictive processes, man, oh, man, we actually get really stuck into our stinking thinking and we can believe the lies that the disease tells us. And so I wrote this book for many reasons. I wrote it as a way to connect more deeply with myself. It's largely a memoir peppered in along with stories from my practice as a leadership consultant. So being in recovery myself, this is what I've learned. I practice in my leadership consulting the principles that we practice in our recovery. So it says practice these principles in all your affairs, right? And so what I know from recovery is the same thing I'm learning as a leadership consultant with clients all over the globe. Regardless of our position in life, it is the connection we have with ourselves that determines the well-being that we experience and that we can Create in others so if we are slowly killing our souls with secrets hustling for approval leveraging control looking for some outside solution we are leapfrogging over our true self
1: wow well I, I love that and you know it's so interesting for me because in some of your stories um, you talk about some of these great leaders like you know a lot of great leaders and a lot of great CEOs and Uh, We can talk about that more later because that's very interesting to me. But um, and then when you raise these concepts to them, uh, teaching them to connect with themselves, which then allows them to really lead with more power and empathy and um, humility. I mean, that that is such a powerful concept. Is is it almost a surprise for some of them when, when they learn these concepts?
0: It is. And it's certainly not like we're flipping a switch and they see the light and they're like, Yay! Thank you for coming into my office and turning my world upside down. It is as with anything that is about finding our true self. It's a process. And as you and I both know, it's progress, not perfection, right? It's connection, not perfection. So what I like to say to people is regardless of your signs of success, the car you drive, the money you make, the title you hold. There is something inside of you that needs to be addressed. So we're not leaders having a leadership crisis. In many ways, we're leaders having a human being crisis, Derek. And I'm sure you see this in your own work. It's the very thing that is creating the great resignation. So the great resignation didn't just Happen. We didn't just wake up one morning with boatloads of people leaving their jobs. We created the great resignation by ignoring the humanity in our workplaces, whether we did that in little ways or in big ways. So most leaders find the process that I bring to them different. It's not a checklist. We're not after some kind of process. What I invite leaders to do is to dig deep into themselves, to do the healing that they need to do to address their flaws, and then to bring that to their teams to create true transformation and not just information.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. And so this book came out really not too long ago, you know, so I, I imagine um, even your, with your research and work, you saw how the pandemic and how the work from home, and like you talk about this great resignation, affected people. Do you feel that there was some trauma from the pandemic and how is it impacting some of your business clients?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Thanks for asking that. Yes, of course. It's definitely impacting how, what it's doing. Let me back up for a minute. What it's doing is it's allowing people to reflect differently. So what I see a lot with my senior level executives, CEOs and others on that same kind of level is they're asking themselves questions that perhaps they wouldn't have asked otherwise. So the pandemic was an invitation to reflection. I don't believe as a psychotherapist and as a leadership consultant that the pandemic caused the struggles we're seeing. You know, we have been plagued by the usual suspects, depression, anxiety, addiction for decades, just decades. We have definitely seen an uptick in those, and we can't ignore the role that the pandemic played. But honestly, it was a crisis waiting to be had. I mean, you and I both know, I mean, the addiction statistics are staggering these
1: days. mm mm-hmm
0: fentanyl laced in everything it's it's just a travesty and i actually believe that addiction is the real epidemic and i'm hoping that the covid pandemic shines a light on that
1: i think it is wow wow you know i love that because um you know i i've been sober a long time and and i know you have too. uh, um 35 years for you is that accurate Uh Um, I'm
0: trying to do the math in my head. 18, 18 years I've been in recovery.
1: Okay. 18 years. I apologize. Um, yeah, so I've been sober, uh, 25 years from drugs and alcohol, which is great, you know, but I've still been working on recovery and it's interesting because addiction or really the desire to be loved, you know, there's always that thing inside that, you know, if we never quite heal it, then we always try and fill it with different things. For some people it's workaholism, um, drinking too much coffee, uh, playing golf every day, gambling, sex, you know, food, it just comes out sideways. And I've realized that it takes daily work, you know, and here I am at 49 years old and starting this podcast because, and then so happy that I get to meet someone like you. And when I read your book, I was like, oh my gosh, she figured it out. Like she, she put it into words, you know, because what I've learned is that connection is the key and it's, and it's just so clear. Um, I I don't know. It was so, it was so powerful for me. And, you know, I don't know, please share. (laughs) I want to hear more from you.
0: Oh, Oh, thank you, Derek. Um, I want to unpack a little bit of what you said. Writing the book was powerful for me. I mean, really this book, writing this book really kicked my ass because it pulled me into a deeper reflection on myself. So many leaders who read the book are saying, wow, I mean, there's a lot of you in this book. And I don't know any other way to bring people into healing other than to use ourselves as instruments to tell our story, right? We know that in the rooms, when we walk into the rooms, it could be for the very first time that we feel, oh, wow, I'm not alone. You too, I thought it was just me. So when we hear people's stories, even if we don't relate to every single detail, we get the essence of it. And if nothing else, I want people to start thinking about it connection differently. I want people to know that connection has to start with themselves. And in that connection to themselves, they usually come across some kind of a spiritual relationship some sense of a higher power so that self and a higher power start working together and we can give up this struggle for control and putting our ego that is usually fueled by um, fear. We can stop putting our ego in the driver's seat and we can start welcoming a sense of humility and gratitude and even leaders CEOs of publicly traded companies are finding that there is some truth and power in connecting deeply to themselves.
1: Yes, yes. Cuz it's know, in that. Please go ahead. Sarah. No, go
0: ahead. Go ahead.
1: Hmm. Well, Mm-mm, no, please I love the ahead, I, I love the concept of connecting with a higher power and and it's interesting because I always thought a higher power was something outside of myself but there's also a different way to look at it which is connecting with the higher power that is within or the true self you know because i believe we all have this true self which is pure and good and perfect um and that gets changed and mutated and often hurt you know through growing up and difficulties in life bullying you know different types of neglect or things that happen And that search to come back to that is quite the journey. So is that part of your process, is taking people on that journey?
0: So when we connect to ourselves, it really is a lifelong journey, right, Derek? I mean, absolutely. It's not a one and done. It's not a check the box process, do these five things and you'll be fine for the rest of your life. For instance, the steps we work in recovery are not meant to just be something we think about once when we first become sober, when we first recover from whatever it is we're recovering from. It's a lifelong guide. And so I do take leaders and their teams and entire organizations through a very deep self-discovery process where people are encouraged in a very safe way to leverage their strengths, to really understand what their gifts are who they were designed to be, and also to address their flaws, because it's the flaws mm, man, that get in our way and trip us up unconsciously, intentionally. I had a CEO the other day talking about his flaws and how he's working on becoming more focused on how they show up, and how they land on the people around him. So it's a process, and a lot of organizations, and I'm sure you know this, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners do, a lot of organizations will embark on a process, and it will go something like this. Let's focus on all the things that are wrong in our culture. And so there's a long laundry list of all the things that they need to talk about, all the normalized defects, so to speak. And what I want them to do instead is start focusing on their their own inner worlds, their individual flaws, the things that they do that they leapfrog over, but that might cause harm to others and to themselves. And once they start to do that, what gets embedded in the cultural DNA are the things that they're looking to create, trust well-being, psychologically safe places. And that what, that's what stems the tide for the great resignation. So people are not leaving workplaces. They're leaving managers. They're leaving toxic cultures that don't just spring up. The toxic cultures are created by individuals. And it's not until the individuals change
1: that the cultures will change. All right, that, that 100% makes sense to me, Karen. And uh, it was interesting when you're talking about the list of all the things that are wrong with our culture, that's really outwardly fixing things. But when I truly look at myself, and if I'm honest, and have the humility, you know, I always say one of the greatest gifts of sobriety is the gift of awareness, right? When I'm in my addiction, I'm really unaware of, of how I impact people in a bad way. But when I'm able to get that clarity. So then I write down these are the things. And then you know, in recovery, it teaches us to kind of turn it over, you know, you turn it over to a higher power. So once I acknowledge it, realize it's a problem, then that means I really shouldn't do it anymore. And I also can't do that alone because it's very difficult. So I use maybe a business coach or higher power or sponsor to kind of help me and move me forward. Is that, um, is that at all similar to what some of the things you're doing with people?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Derek, thanks so much for bringing that up. Connection is not a do-it-yourself enterprise. So I believe we heal in relationship and we heal in community. The idea is finding a tribe that absolutely lifts our vibe, that helps us to be healthy. And that means that in that tribe of people, whether it be a business coach, a sponsor, Beloved and trusted family members, friends, whoever's in that group, they have to be truth tellers. Like I talk about in my book, a great deal, how we learn to give feedback to each other. So we do that with empathy and accountability and by listening deeply. And yet before we can do that with others, we have to turn those very gifts toward ourselves. We have to learn to be empathetic toward ourselves. We have to hold ourselves accountable. We can't, we can't sidestep the things we've done that we need to make amends for. So I agree with you completely. Connection has to happen in a trusted community. This is not a self-help process. It's healing in relationships.
1: Yeah. And how nice, how nice is it, or how nice would it be to work at a place and to be part of a community? Cause I feel like the work community is very important, right? We spend most of our, our lives there, a lot of our day. Um, and to have that community be a loving, trusting place where I'm fully accepted, where I know that my team is doing their best, I'm doing my best. And I think that's kind of what every company would strive towards in a way.
0: And it has to be something more than just inspirational words on a poster in the break room, right? Um, I know cultures, whether they be privately held, family-owned businesses or publicly traded companies, I know, and I'm, I'm privileged to work with them, cultures that do create that sense of well-being for their employees, that there are leaders whose teams truly feel purposeful, heard, seen, and lifted up when they come to work. So leaders who can lead with empathy, and research is showing that one of the big things about the Great Resignation is, again, people are leaving leaders who are not empathetic. And I like to talk about empathy as first it starts with ourselves. So we have to show it to ourselves. And once leaders learn to be compassionate toward themselves and share that feeling with their teams, it doesn't mean that accountability goes out the window. People who are empathetic learn to hold people accountable as well. Empathy doesn't mean we rush in. I mean, here's, here's codependency at its best, right? Rushing in to fix somebody else, to rescue them, to save them from their own consequence. You know, the family disease of addiction creates that very situation. And I see codependency in, in business cultures as well. Bosses who understand that one of their employees is going through a hard time and rush in to do their work for them. Leaders can learn to have empathy. And also hold people accountable. So none of this is, again, as I said before, easy solutions. But it's a process that we can do together, and that really raises the sense of connection and well-being in the workplace.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. <clears throat> and some of the success stories in your book were just amazing. You know, and one thing that I really enjoyed, Karen, is watching these some of these leaders, and as they go through the process, they realize you know, I could probably connect better with my significant other, you know, my my spouse, my partner. I probably could be a better father or better mother. And they take these things and they're able to build connection with, with their family, which really is, is part of the key, right? Because again, work, work, health and happiness is very important. And then home happiness, I think is sim- similar symbiosis, right? So you wanna connect with your spouse and kids better too, which will then make you more effective leader in, in the business world?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Derek. Obviously, if things are grounded at home, it's easier to come to work. When there's family emergencies and chaos, whatever's causing that, it's very difficult to have the focus that we need at work. And I've been through a number of incidences like that as my husband was dying from Alzheimer's, when my family is dealing with addiction issues, whatever the case may be, I'm very open to a certain extent with my clients. I like to role model appropriate vulnerability because when we as leaders show up in a way that tries to communicate that we've got it all together and everything's perfect, It does not help the people around us. What helps the people around us is when we can show up with a discerning sense of vulnerability and we can share our stories in a way that invites other people to know that we are fully human. And that's what starts to really create a deeper sense of connection. So we don't need another leadership paradigm. What we need as leaders is to show up with our full messiness and stories and the ability to say to others, I am struggling too. And that's why I know that I can help you find your way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And a
0: lot of leaders that you, you mentioned, the leaders in my book who have had some successes. It's interesting because none of this happens for any of us overnight. It, is this whole self-discovery process that enhances connection is a process it's a journey
1: yeah so so i'm actually it's it's so interesting to me what you do karen because you know so i started the recovering ceo podcast i mean I've, i've run a company a small digital agency for the last 16 years you know so i've worked with lots of companies i've done startups and uh but i had a strong urge to help others and i realized I think that, like you said, addiction is a real problem in the workplace. It's sometimes not talked about, you know, and they and people have problems. People lose jobs, they lose careers, their families, and nobody ever really wants to talk about the root cause, which was the addiction or the trauma that they had. Um, So I'm trying to raise awareness, you know, for companies and then raise awareness for people who may not even know they have an addiction. Um, And then I see what you're doing, you know, and I'm actually debating going back to school to get an MSW, right, because I was an advertising business major, right? Not at all social work or, you know, counseling, but I want to do that because I want to understand better so I can help better. Right. And if I understand it better then I can be more of use to others. Um, but how did you do it? Cause you, you were a psychotherapist, then you became a business coach. Now you're an author and you're kind of blending it all together in this beautiful mixture. I mean, cause I'm very curious, how did you do it?
0: I really feel like I have the best job in the world. And this is certainly not work for me. First of all, it's really purposeful. I actually believe that it plays to my gifts quite easily. I was raised in a family where I learned that my value was about taking care of other people. In my own recovery as an adult now, I've learned to also take care of myself. So I took those formative messages that I got In my childhood as a result of a lot of grief in my childhood like Karen your value is about making everybody else around you feel good and take care of them and I've morphed that into what I now see as a very healthy ability to connect with other people as long as I also take care of myself it's been a process because I left undergraduate work and went immediately Derek to the seminary. I went to Princeton Theological Seminary to be an Episcopal priest. And I decided there, um, even though I got my MDiv, that I didn't want to be ordained because I, I couldn't see myself working on Sundays. I thought, can't we do church like on Thursday afternoon? Wouldn't that be a good idea?
1: <laughs> I love that. Um,
0: but what I really also learned during seminary was my call was to sit with other people, and listen to the power of their stories. I also started therapy when I was in seminary. My mom had just died after a really long illness. I was traumatized, didn't even realize the extent to which I was traumatized. And the more that I went through my own therapeutic process, and it's been that's been a lifelong journey too, the more I realized I'm think I'm called to do this, to do the therapy work, to help people come out of the shadows, to own their stories, to dig deep. So I went on to get my MSW. Uh And then that took me into a practice as a psychotherapist. Long story short, a corporation heard me speak at a conference, offered me a job. I thought, well, hot diggity dog, people who work for corporations get cars paid for. I'm going to do this. So about 20 years ago, I left corporate America and opened my own shop, combining the therapeutic practice I had with the business expertise I garnered to create a leadership consulting practice. And here I am.
1: I love that. I love that. Um. okay. So I'm curious, you know, you've met a lot of business leaders out there. Is there ever a leader you could imagine that you couldn't help or that you wouldn't want to work with? And what would trigger that where you say, you know, maybe I'm not the person for you. Like what would, what would make you feel that way?
0: That's a great question. I often do Don't show up thinking I can't help someone. And believe me, I'm not here to fix anybody. I'm here to act as a guide. Um, I have expertise that can help to invite people into their own stories so they can emerge from them with a holistic sense of who they are and become even more successful. However, there have been just a handful of clients And and seriously, just a handful who have decided somewhere in the process, this isn't for me. I don't want to go that deep. I don't want to take the feedback that comes from a 360 process. I'm not willing to do this work. And we see that in the rooms, too. I mean, there, there are people who are not ready for recovery. They might be ready to put down the drugs and the alcohol, but to really dig deep and do the emotional and spiritual work, they're not ready to do. And then it's just a matter of time before they go back to the substances. We've all seen that. It's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Heartbreaking. And so the same is true for human beings in all walks of life. Some people just are not ready to do that work. It's scary. It takes humility. It takes them to a place they don't want to go.
1: What do they say? Constitutionally and incapable. And we can't make them. Yeah. Constitutionally incapable of being honest Unconstitutionally with themselves.
0: Constitutionally incapable.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's not it's their fault they, fault. they were born that the way. The
0: ability to be, uh, just ability to be that rigorously self honest. It's scary to be that honest. And yet, W.H. Auden, the poet, said something so beautiful, Derek, and it sticks with me all the time. And it's so reflective of our recovery process. He said that there are people who would rather be ruined than changed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, you know, in the, uh, well, there's, there's a song. I'm a big, I'm a big uh, Grateful Dead fan. And there's a song that they play. They they do a lot of traditional old songs and it's called Deal. Mm -hmm. And it says, you know, it costs a lot to win, you know, you know, it takes a lot to win, but even more to lose you and me might've spent some time wondering which to choose. So, you know, yeah. winning, winning costs a lot, losing costs more, but it's a big debate. Uh, they also say it in AA where they say the choice between living a spiritual life or dying an alcoholic death was one that we had to think about for a while, <laughs> which seems crazy, but it shows sometimes the power of the other side, right? The dark side, so to speak, or It's powerful.
0: Oh, oh, yeah. We start to believe the lies that the disease tells us. And what happens then is we, we literally become slaves to the lies, to the darkness. And that doesn't happen just with addiction, although in some ways it happens more dramatically for alcoholics and addicts alcoholics and addicts wear their issues on their sleeves, right? It's so clear to everyone else around them until they too surrender. Um, but for a lot of people who suffer, it's not as obvious. And they keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different solution. Whatever their, whatever their suffering is, it could be working too much. It could be um, anger. It could be not being able to be vulnerable and showing up in a way that pushes other people away. Whatever it is, it's compulsive. And they keep doing more and more of it because they would rather be ruined than changed.
1: Yeah. Hmm. You know, it's interesting because I'm certainly not a... Please go
0: ahead. Us human beings are so complex. And life is messy.
1: It is, it is, you know, and so one of the concepts I really enjoyed in your book was the concept of, uh, or strategy is, is being curious, curiosity, you know, and you talked about, um, how curiosity really unlocks a lot of things for leaders and, really opens up the possibilities, which I love because I always viewed myself as a creative person, like the Think Different campaign, you know, honoring the people that think different. I think different. And because I'm sober or because I've been able to do that work, then I can actually act on it, right? As opposed to keeping it my light under a bushel basket. But I think curiosity unlocks a lot of that based on your book.
0: It's so important to be able to ask ourselves the tough questions. I mean, the good questions, too. I mean, this whole process of curiosity is a lot like life. It's hard and good. It's messy and beautiful. And when we ask ourselves questions, when we go there, when we're willing to look at ourselves, so many different opportunities can open themselves up to us. And I do believe that curiosity really is a game changer and it is a superpower and it's connected to empathy because we really can't be curious until we're willing to hold our story softly and lightly and compassionately and do the same with other people. So when I talk about curiosity with leaders, I like to distinguish it from questioning. Because curiosity means we ask questions that invite people to feel safe enough to open up, to be innovative, to take risks, which is very different from questioning, which is more about leaving people feeling like they're on the witness stand and that we're just shoveling questions at them.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. So here's a question for you. I understand the, the leaders, the leaders, like the top people doing introspection and whatnot, it seems like there might reach a certain point where people are hesitant to share certain things or hesitant to go public with it, right? It's one thing for me to look at it myself and say, this is what I'm dealing with. How do I go public with it and share in that safe environment? And is that ever a problem for people? Do some people hold on to things that they never want to give up? They might tell you, but they don't, they're hesitant to mention it to the leadership team or...
0: Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Um, And, you know, in the program, we say share, share what you need to share with yourself. So be honest with yourself. Talk about it with your higher power and one other person. So in order for us to release ourselves from our secrets, it doesn't mean we have to go public with whatever it is we're struggling with. I want to be really clear about that because If people are going public with something, it has to be done in a very discerning way. So I really urge people to be very careful about what they're willing to share in any kind of public arena. And and I also believe that it's helpful if we can find some ways to tell our stories because it helps to break the stigma It helps to bring us out from the shadows. It does help us to align our personal with our professional. And so I think if it's done with grace, it can be done very well. And that doesn't mean we overshare and it doesn't mean we tell all the gory details and it doesn't mean we tell other people's stories. Like how do I tell my story without telling other people's stories very carefully. So this whole idea of vulnerability is powerful. And I also want people to say, let me tap the brakes and see what that means for me. How can I be vulnerable and also discerning? Who has earned the right to hear my story? Who can I entrust that to? So for instance, a CEO can say to his or her team, I want you to know that I'm struggling with some things back at home. And that could possibly be more than enough. Now that same CEO might wanna tell one or two truly trusted colleagues in the organization a little bit more. And if they're giving an interview After the crisis has passed, and there's some story of healing or understanding that comes from that, they might want to tell that story to give hope to other people. It often depends on where we are in the developmental phase of the story and who we're with. Does that make any sense, Derek?
1: Oh, yeah. 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 If you're right in the middle of it or if you're still in a very vulnerable position, it's probably best to keep it to your very close people. But like you said, if you're in more of the healing phase or you've come out of it, then it's at that point, you can really share your experience, strength, and hope to show how people can get out of those types of situations, right? Right,
0: right. Different time, To not stay in the problem, but to share the solution as well. And, and And not to sugarcoat or give this 21 gun salute to false positivity. So when I talk about sharing the solution, I'm not talking about sugarcoating the problem. We have to be real and raw with our stories and to do that again in discerning ways.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Karen. Uh, there's a person I work with, he runs, he's run treatment centers for many, many years, really wise person. And they said, what's the number one reason that people can never get sober? You know, especially after a relapse, they can never get sober again. And he says, he said humility, but then he said it's very difficult to live in the light, which I think is interesting. And it goes back to the you know we're only as sick as our secrets, which means I can't lie, I can't keep secrets. And living in the light means everything I do is visible, right or seen. And he said that's very difficult for people to make that choice. Mm-hmm. I don't know.
0: I heard this wonderful thing about humility, and I believe that humility is really the key to living a life of honesty. And there's a Hebrew translation of the word humility that means to step into our God given space. So I'm no better or any worse. Than anybody else. And I've been given gifts to step into. And yet at the same time. How do I do that. With understanding that that does not make me. Above or beneath anybody else. To just step into my. God given space. With grace. And humility. These are not my gifts. They've just been entrusted to me. So how do I make the most
1: of them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. You know, and thinking about your seven strategies to empower your true self and inspire others, is there one that you feel is the most important that businesses really need Mm. to pay attention to?
0: I think they're so interrelated. Um, Empathy flows from our ability to connect consciously and then enhances curiosity and as we learn to navigate chaos comfortably we need empathy so they're really all very synergistic i do believe that some leaders have a strength in some of them more pronounced than in others and like with anything that's a beautiful thing because then we can create an orchestra around us that plays to our differences So on any executive team, there are people who will definitely show up with more empathy than others. Some might be more curious. Some might be able to listen more deeply and some might be able to have that courage-based confidence I talked about. It's a matter of knowing. Again, we go back to that self-connection. It's a matter of knowing what we show up with and what we might need to learn to do
1: more effectively. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, this book I think is very unique. Um, as I've said, I've read many business books, you know, I think about, I mean, use the the number seven, you know, there's the seven habits of highly effective people. You know, there's, I've read obviously Dale Carnegie. I mean, there's a lot of these classics, great books, right. And they may help you with your organization. Dale Carnegie might tell you how to be friendly to people and use their names and they all have value. And I really like, you know, I believe that there's so much power in the long tail, which means picking a topic, uh, connected leader, and then going deep into it, right? Um, every business owner, every CEO may not be the type of CEO that wants to do this, right? That wants to, because I feel like what you're teaching here makes everything else possible. So I could learn some organizational system on my seven habits, but if I'm not at peace with myself, if I don't understand myself, or if I'm not stepping into that God given space, I'm not going to be able to be organized, or I'm not going to be able to do what Dale Carnegie says and go out and shake hands if I don't feel good about myself to look people in the eye. So what you're doing here is almost a foundational thing for any business owner before they then learn all these other hacks. By hacks, I mean, like business tricks and and techniques to then succeed. So I feel like yours is like the beginning of all that.
0: Oh, thank you. It's flown, it's flowed from my, from my life because anytime that we focus on an outside solution, like, oh, this is the checklist or this book will help or this will be the magic bullet and it's outside of ourselves, it doesn't have that sustainability. It doesn't have that staying power, power. The only thing that really works is when we get real about who we are seen it over and over again. And not just in my own life. I've seen it in cultures and with senior level global executives and with family-owned founders. It works. It works if you work it. So we have to be able to have that courage to dive deep into ourselves if we truly want to create well-being for those around us it all starts with that connection to ourselves
1: yeah i i I love that i'll I'll share a quick story with you um because i've spent thousands and thousands of dollars on trainings and programs and different things and i don't know necessarily if any of them worked right um but one time i was talking to a sales trainer nice guy and he was asking me all these questions about sales and he told me he said you know what the problem's not what you're selling or whatnot. He said, the problem's in here. And he put his hand on my chest and it made me emotional because he was right. The problem was here, but going through that high pressure sales training for $20,000 was not the answer. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, the, so I, I related, <laughs> yes, the problem is inside, but that didn't bring the the problem out. That just told me how to stay focused and, you know, go through objections and win the sale. Right. Which is, didn't work necessarily, you know, because I I didn't understand myself at that time.
0: I was doing a corporate book club slash workshop a few weeks ago, and there was an executive in it, a male executive. And we were discussing a part of the book and he was in tears because he said, when he read a line in the book, it changed the outlook for him completely. And the sentence in the book was, we can't connect to or lead other people in inspiring ways until we connect to and lead ourselves in honest ways. That's the entire crux of the book, of my life. It's not easy, but it is so rewarding and it changes everything.
1: Wow, yeah. no. We'll wrap this up. You know, from my perspective, your book was a beautiful journey, and I appreciate that you shared a lot of intimate details about your life as you told this story, Um, and I feel like there was no waste in this book. It's not too long. You know, it's an easy read. I told my wife she's a really fast reader. She could do it very quick, but uh, for me, it was just very impactful, and I need to read it again, honestly, Um, but I'm wondering, Kara, if you have any parting words for our guests, uh, any—you shared a lot of wisdom, but is there any more— Final wisdom you'd like to say uh, before we close?
0: I'm gathering my thoughts. I think I would like listeners to understand that while we're wired for connection, it's absolutely true. We're neuro- neurobiologically wired to connect, to choose the connections that you have with others very carefully. And we can do that effectively when we really start to connect with ourselves. And when we have the courage to change what we
1: can change. Love that. Love that that relates to our job, to our personal relationships, all that. Um, So Karen, again, Karen Joy Hardwick wrote this amazing book, The Connected Leader. You can get it on Amazon. I'm going to put links to it in the show notes. And uh, Karen, you're, you're an inspiration to me starting out as uh, someone who aspires to be like like you're doing, teaching people and helping bring them along. And I hope we can you know continue to collaborate and uh, um, continue on this journey of recovery and helping others. So really pleased to talk to you today.
0: It was a privilege to connect with you, Derek. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: <laughs> All right. Thanks for watching The Recovering CEO, and we'll see you all next time.
0: You thought that you could have it all, and life could be a ball, but well, you fell and scabbed your knee. Now you can.